0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts 9. Acts 9. Acts records the rapid spread of early Christianity. If you were to zip through the entire book, you'd you'd quickly see just how much this exploded in the Mediterranean region. You start with 120 disciples in one church in Jerusalem. By the end, you've got thousands of Christians in dozens of churches scattered about modern-day Palestine, Turkey, Greece, Italy, North Africa. Rapid expansion in just 30 years. Now, so far through our journey, we've, we've noticed various means that God uses to grow the church. First and foremost is commitment to gospel proclamation. These early Christians, as we see, did not shy away from clearly and honestly communicating the gospel without too much concern for how people would react. This church is on the move. And it's on the move because it's faithfully proclaiming the gospel. It's on the move also because they're rigorously committed to prayer. They understood the, the vast difference between what works and who works. This revival-sparking church was characterized by fellowship and generosity. They, they devoted themselves to having a harmonious unity among their ranks and a deep commitment to mutually, materially supporting one another. Now last week we began to see another challenge that revival would create for the church. Everybody hears about revival and they think that's great, that's fantastic, but it's not without its hiccups. How would the church welcome to the family someone who previously abused it? When God sends revival, the work that follows isn't always easy. Welcoming people to the family is not always neat and pretty. And we're going to get another picture of that today. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is talking about Saul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. When God saves individuals, he simultaneously calls them into Christian community within the church. An often overlooked ministry in the church is what I'm calling today Christian inclusion. We'll see that from this passage. Christian inclusion, really have three aspects to it. Our reticence to include, the reason we hesitate to include, and the pathway to Christian inclusion. Our reticence to include the reason we hesitate and the pathway to it. First, our reticence to include, look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, Pastor John has taken you through the story of Saul's conversion. You know about his underhanded past. You know about his nefarious exploits. You know about his persecution of the church. So when he shows up in Jerusalem, out of the blue, frankly, I don't blame the disciples for their reaction. Their skepticism and fear is understandable. Think about what they had witnessed. They had seen their friends, their comrades in ministry suffer at the hands of this guy. The beloved Stephen was stoned to death as Saul looked on in approval. And it's been three years since Saul's Damascus Road experience in which he was radically converted. This is the first time he's been back in Jerusalem. If I'm a leader of the church, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is three years ago? And you wait till now? We had some things to iron out, Saul. Saul. Why do you wait three years? The swirling doubts and reticence to include Saul among them is understandable. And please note, this reticence is coming from church leaders. How hard must it be? There's a lesson for us here. And it's good to verbalize this and just get it out there. Sometimes inclusion of new believers in Christ or maybe people who are believers who are new to our church, that can be difficult. I would not say it comes naturally to any of us. Including believers in our Christian circles does not come naturally. And this reticence is what makes us feel the click sensation. All I'm trying to do is put some language to what we feel at times. This reticence to include is what creates the click sensation. And notice these are leaders who are struggling to do that. So if these are the apostles who walked among Jesus for three years and they're struggling with this, might that be a universal struggle? When we meet a believer in church for the first time, it may not be our natural impulse to welcome them in and make them feel part of our family. So listen, Christian... We're going to have to work hard at this one, really hard at this one. I doubt it's going to come naturally to us. We have a reticence to inclusion that we need to simply acknowledge and be aware of. Second, why do we do that? Why do we hesitate to include? Why why is there a struggle? Now, there's a universal human emotion that prevented the apostles from immediately embracing Saul. Fear. They were afraid of him. Now, their fear makes sense, given Paul's past and their experience with him. But that is just a matter of degree, not difference. Because I would say that their unique experience only exacerbates the condition we already have. Ever since Eden, part of the fallen condition we all share is a default posture of fear. The very first negative or fallen emotion Adam and Eve are said to feel is fear. Fear is our default posture. I don't care what kind of veneer you try to put on top of that, you are afraid. I am afraid. We wake up afraid. We go to school afraid. We go to work afraid. We attend church afraid. We play afraid. Now in the context of community, fear keeps us confined to familiar faces. This is where the click comes from. Fear keeps us confined to familiar faces and it prevents us from engaging new ones. To put it simply, fear is what prevents you from introducing yourself to someone you don't know. So when someone you don't know comes up to you after the service and introduces themselves to you, this is them working on it. Encourage them. (laughs) Remember the role of Pentecost in reversing Babel. Remember the problem in Babel? It's not the city they're trying to build. It's not the big tower they're trying to build. That's not the issue. It's why they were doing it that's the issue. One of the motivations driving them was what? Fear. Fear of what? Well, they tell us, if we don't do this, we're going to be scattered. We can't have that. So they chose to close ranks. They chose to close ranks and and engage in something that would allow them to what? Cluster. Fear keeps us confined. It keeps us confined to familiar faces, familiar places, familiar routines, and prevents us from engaging new ones. You want a simple and trivial example of this? Watch the first five minutes of What About Bob. I watch it every year in the summertime. I don't know what my fascination is with it. Maybe it's the part where he says, Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give I need, I need. Parents, you can relate to that. First five minutes of the movie, what happens? Hmm? He, he goes to work. How does he go to work? In his apartment. He's got a punch clock there. Search his time card. Right? He's at work. In his apartment. Well, then it comes time for him to go to a psychiatrist appointment. That's a challenge. How many attempts does he take trying to get out the door? You see him walk boldly towards the front door and then do an about face. Nope, didn't make it that time. It's like the little kid learning to die for the first time. Nope, not that time. He does finally get out of his apartment, but now he's got a bigger problem. He's got to leave the building. As you watch this unfold, Bob, with all his phobias and fear... His world appears quite small. Listen, fear keeps us confined. It keeps us confined. It keeps us confined to familiar faces, places, and routines, and it prevents us from engaging new ones. And this is so inconsistent with the mission that God has for the church. Thirteen times the word bold is used in Acts, more than any other New Testament book. Our story as a church isn't meant to be characterized by fear and confinement, but courage and expansion. So when it comes to Christian inclusion, what's our pathway there? What's our pathway there? Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, the way the text reads suggests that Saul on his own attempted to spend time in fellowship with the disciples, but they would have none of it. Hey, Saul, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. They turn him away. What's the pathway to Christian inclusion? Well, once again, we need an example. Who shows up to save the day? Barnabas. Once again, You talk about a model Christian. Look at Barnabas. The original language implies that Barnabas actually took Saul by the hand and led him among the apostles. You picture this? Led him by the apostles. Hey, men. He's for real. Uh, Philip, it's all right. Get out from underneath the bed. Come on, Philip. (laughs) He's legit. Now, what does this imply? First, Barnabas knew Saul's story. If we're going to engage in the Christian ministry of inclusion in the church, you need to learn the Christian story. Now, I find it providentially fascinating that Barnabas is the one who relayed Saul's story to the church leaders on behalf of Saul. Why that's important, we'll come to in a minute. But you've got to ask a question at that point. How did he know? How did he know Saul's story? Barnabas was not with Saul when Jesus confronted Saul on his way to Damascus. And how does he know so much? He speaks with confidence. He knows things about his life. Well, Barnabas was curious enough and interested enough in Saul to engage him, to ask. The pathway to inclusion into fellowship in the church always, 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 always goes through this question. How did you become a follower of Jesus Christ? And by the way, as a side note, this is one of the reasons why our connection within the church can be Shallow. We've not actually asked that question and gotten that story. Oh, yeah, we know what they do for a living. We know their weekly routines. We know their hobbies. We know their likes and dislikes, where they'll be eating. We have no idea what their Christian story is. And that limits the depth of Christian connection. The pathway to inclusion in the church, fellowship in the church, deep, deep, deep connection always runs through this question. How did you become a follower of Jesus Christ? But we have to be curious enough to ask. Now, why does Barnabas lead with Saul's conversion story? You know, that's the first thing out of his mouth, that he's trying to resolve this problem he's got in front of him. Why does he lead with that? Saul's conversion is the first thing he talks about. Why do you suppose that is? Well, what's the problem? The apostles' rejection of Saul, fueled by their fear of him, is the problem. So he leads with Saul's story because Barnabas knows this aspect to Saul's life is the most important feature that will lead to his inclusion in the community of faith. And that ought to be the most important factor of anybody's life that will lead to their inclusion in the community of faith. You can have different hobbies, careers, socioeconomic standings, interests, family backgrounds, skin colors, ethnicities, language. The most important feature for Christian inclusion in the community of faith is your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is the most important characteristic that binds Christians together. Listen, you want a picture of the church? Let me give you one. The church is a patchwork quilt. It's a patchwork quilt comprised of dissimilar people that God stitches together with thread dyed in the blood of Christ. That's a picture of the church. You may have some really funky looking squares in that patchwork quilt, but the one thing they all share together is the color of the thread that stitches them together. Second, if we're going to do this, not only do we have to know their story and make that the most important thing about them, their connection to Christ, the most important thing about them, we have to embrace the ministry of advocacy. Again, I don't think we've talked a lot about this in the American church. You don't hear this talked about a lot. If we're going to be a movement of Christian inclusion, we're going to need lots of Barnabases, calling all Barnabases, calling all people who desire to be a Barnabas, We might call them connectors or networkers in secular parlance. Barnabas leads Saul by the hand before the apostles and advocates for him. His story is real. The grace of God in his life is evident. Barnabas even mentions Saul's bold proclamation of the gospel in Damascus. He had gotten to know this guy. And why does he mention that? Probably as evidence of fruit. His conversion story's legit, and there's evidence that this guy's new. He's not like he once was. And I can advocate for him. So Barnabas is bringing two parties together. Two parties that mm, there's a barrier between the two, and Barnabas is trying to tear that down. And how does he lead with it? He says, listen, you've got the most important thing in common. Your common bond to Christ. It's the most important thing about you. This is the ministry of advocacy. It's the ministry of Christian inclusion. So how do we become a Barnabas? How do we become an advocate? (laughs) Fundamentally, we have to know the advocate we are already in. Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the one who comes alongside you and speaks for you. He's your defense attorney. John Specifically, labels Jesus as an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So even though Christians are saved and united to Christ, we still sin. This is the argument John's making. We still sin. There's an indictment against us. And in the courtroom as a prosecutor, in Revelation, John calls him the accuser of Christians. Satan. God is the judge. And he knows we're guilty. The full record's in front of him. But we have an advocate. One who speaks for us. Unlike the court of public opinion that Saul found himself in, there's a heavenly court. Barnabas comes alongside Saul. You know, Saul doesn't say a word in this. Barnabas does all the talking. And the righteousness and fruit and reputation that Barnabas was able to convey to the people about Saul was imputed to Saul and he was embraced, accepted, and included. He was lost in his advocate, as one person put it. He disappeared into his advocate. Saul disappeared into Barnabas, and because they listened to Barnabas, and Barnabas made a convincing case, Saul was embraced. Do you see the connection to the gospel? Jesus stands before the bench of God. We're not saying a word. He's making the case. We're lost in our advocate and his words for us. And what does Jesus, your advocate, say? You can't condemn Brian. You can't condemn Sue. You can't condemn Mike. You can't condemn Emma. I've already been condemned in their place. I showed up in Jerusalem way before Saul. I was estranged and I was excluded, not just at the cost of my reputation or the loss of relationships, but at the cost of my life. I died on the cross for Saul, for you, and therefore double jeopardy is attached You can't condemn these people because I've already been condemned in their place. See, Christian, Jesus is your advocate who attaches his own righteousness to you for your acceptance before God. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are in him. You're lost in your advocate. Do you see how the ministry of advocacy within the church takes on new meaning in light of Jesus' advocacy for us? You see that? This is at very least an understated ministry in the church. It's probably one we need to make more of. Mary, I would like to introduce you to Beth. Beth is a Jesus follower, and I can advocate for her faith in Christ. Welcome her into your life. Mike, I would like to introduce you to Steve. Steve is a brand new Christian, but I can advocate for his confession of faith and the early fruit budding on the vine. Welcome him into your life. So what Jesus has done is he's given us the great privilege of playing a Jesus role in the lives of others. You've got a Jesus role to play in the lives of others. A role that has to be played if our community of faith is going to be tightly bound together in love for one another. Look at the result of this. Verse 31 is attached to the previous section. Where this advocacy for Saul is made and the two parties are brought together. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what happened to the church? It multiplied. It multiplied. The ministry of advocacy is a growth engine for the church. Let me conclude with another trivial example of this. I, I once had the opportunity to meet, talk with, and pray with Joe Gibbs. For those of you who are not sports fans, Joe was uh, coach Gibbs, was uh, head coach of, uh, in the NFL and won a Super Bowl. He now owns a NASCAR team. Championship winning NASCAR team. And, uh, uh, he was doing, he was on the circuit doing, uh, game plan for life, God's game plan for life, where he would come in, he would, you gather a bunch of men together for a breakfast, and he'd come and give his story and a call to repentance and faith, and the, the whole nine yards. And so, uh, we were looking at doing one of these, hosting one of these, and so he sent his right hand man in, a guy by the name of Ronaldo Wynn, who was a defensive lineman in the NFL, to spend the day with us so we could, uh, learn from him, find a little bit more about what this thing was. And and while he was in town, uh, he let us know that they were putting one on just about an hour and a half away. So we could come, wanted us to come and check it out so we could see it and make a decision about whether or not we would, we would host it. And, and so we went down to this and, and Ronaldo greeted us and said, listen, uh, I want to introduce you to coach. So he led us back into a back room where coach Gibbs was all by himself, just, Preparing for, for his talk. And at that moment I thought to myself, what if Ronaldo was not here and I just came walking into the room? How how long would it take for Coach to call security? I don't know this guy. What's he here for? I'm all by myself. I have no idea what what is hap-? He sees Ronaldo, he looks at us, and says, Let's talk and then let's pray. Let's talk and then let's pray. Two disparate parties brought together through an advocate. Jesus has given us the privilege of playing a Jesus role in the lives of others. A role that has to be played. We need it. If our community of faith is going to be tightly bound together in love, and on the basis of our shared identity as sinners purchased by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we who were once far off, strangers, alienated from your life, have been brought into your family, have been adopted as sons and daughters to the advocacy of Jesus. We are lost in him. His righteousness is now ours by faith. And we give you thanks for that. I pray that that would fuel our church, that we would not just embrace that as a truth that sounds really cool and one we want to talk about, but God, that we would adopt that as a modus operandi for how we go about living within the community of the church. That we would take the role of a Barnabas to bring two parties together formally disparate. We thank you. We praise you for it all in Christ's name. Amen.